This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a hard fact of life that life can be hard. That might sound like bad news, but the good news is that therapy works and BetterHelp can help you find a therapist to do what you need to do to stay on track. Therapy is whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and like some tools to help, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work. Whatever you need, BetterHelp can help. I use therapy from time to time to help me sort through challenges, emotions, or just to ensure that I'm on track for the things that are important. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. And special offer to Man God Law listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash mangodlaw. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash mangodlaw. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. This is a handmaid's tale, self-described by our incomparable guest, rock journalist extraordinaire, Sylvie Simmons. Why a handmaid's tale? Sylvie used this phrase playfully to describe how she came to become the biographer of Leonard Cohen and the resulting book, I'm Your Man, The Life of Leonard Cohen, which is the definitive portrait of one of the great artists and personalities of our time, Indeed, one of the few musicians mentioned as a poetic peer of Bob Dylan. The handmaid she must have in mind is quite the opposite of the figures of subjection by gender in the terrifying novel by Margaret Atwood, now streaming as an equally jarring TV series in which women are forced into servitude, their only viable role in society defined by the capacities of their wombs. But birth and myth and partnership do describe Sylvie Simmons' essential role in popular music. Having interviewed just about every rock and pop star of acclaim except for one Bob Dylan, and we do have our fingers crossed on that one, as you will hear, from Tom Waits to Michael Jackson, the gentlemen of Led Zeppelin to Stevie Nicks, Johnny Cash, Motley Crue, Tom Petty, and on and on and on, Sylvie plays a role with intellectual depth, poetic empathy, and exhaustive musical knowledge required to birth and sustain the rock and roll mythic canon. Rock and roll lives as a weaving of myths, and the rock stars are Zeus and Hera, Penelope and Odysseus, as much as they are Homer. They are gods and heroes to those who love them, the actors in ethereal stories of primal purpose of love and death and friendship and God and war. And they narrate these stories about themselves and others these stories about us. It's no coincidence that we call Dylan and Elvis Costello and Joni Mitchell gods at the same time as we call them bards, like the bards of old. 
The raw material and process are the same, even as they were in ancient days, even though the times they are a-changing. But there's another element as well, that of the handmade, the teller of tales who is the rock journalist. Yes, so much of what we know about the gods of rock come from their music, but it is the rock star interview pioneered by the Rock Bible Rolling Stone magazine as named after Bob Dylan's own song, where testaments of rock and roll were given, kind of like an oral tradition to the sacred texts of the songs, kind of a New Testament to the old, explaining the gaps, coloring the personal details, humanizing the gods. This has been Sylvie's unique role in the rock and roll mythology for 45 years, and in this context, we talk here a great deal about Leonard Cohen, his intersection with Dylan, how Cohen and Dylan work, how rock's myth-makers play, and what all of this might mean from a very personal lens framed by a truly thoughtful, knowledgeable rock and roll pro joining us by the good old-fashioned landline from San Francisco. Welcome to Bob Dylan about man and God and law, the podcast that inspired the book about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. I hope you read it soon. I'm your man because I'm your host, Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Welcome to episode two of season three, Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan with rock journalist Sylvie Simmons. Thank you so much for making time for a conversation. It's actually an honor and privilege to have a chance to speak with you because as a uh, a reader and student of rock and roll, the popular music, I am well acquainted with your writing, uh, the many interviews. The list is incredible. The Clash, Tom Petty, Johnny Cash, Motley Crue, Steely Dan, The Beach Boys, Kiss, Stevie Nicks. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And Leonard Cohen, who I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about, you are one of the foremost uh, music journalists working today, and you've been doing it for a long and wonderful time. You are a singer, songwriter, and ukulele player extraordinaire, and also the author of fiction. (laughs) Is there anything else we should add to the list? No, it's fine. It sounds a little bit like me. It's 45 years of music journalism, and uh, I came out as a musician around the time that I was writing Leonard Cohen's biography. So it really was writing that biography, it seems, that brought out that musical performer, the songwriter, and it really brought you into a new place in your career. It really was the impact of spending that time with Leonard Cohen and writing that book. It was more the impact of finishing the book and wanting more than anything on earth after three years of work, writing it every day to get out into the world at the same time as Leonard Cohen was going on his the wonderful tour, the absolutely groundbreaking uh extraordinary comeback to us that he did comeback being a horrible word but it's a simple way of saying it and uh, I was going on my own tour with the book and mostly playing at different kind of music places as opposed to bookshops and I thought well I'll take a ukulele along and instead of just reading to people they can read the book themselves I'll just uh, be a human Leonard Cohen jukebox on my ukulele which was easier to carry than a guitar and by the end of the this long, long tour around many, many countries. 
I uh, kind of got over the sort of stage fright that stopped me being a singer-songwriter in the first place and sent me into writing about music instead and just playing my own songs at home. So it was with kind of Leonard's, I don't know, I wouldn't say his actual kind of support. He wasn't calling up people and saying, you've got to put Sylvie on stage. But I think he was rather delighted at my going around with a ukulele, which was his first instrument or his first string instrument before he played the guitar. So was the ukulele his uh, buckskin boys uh, instrument of choice? Or was that even before the uh, the buckskin boys? No, no, no. It was before the Buckskin Boys. I think in Canada, they tended to give out ukuleles to kids, whereas in England, where I'm from, they gave us recorders, you know, the little blowing sure. things. So right. while he was getting, you know, some nifty handwork in, I was more about blowing into a tube in my childhood and had to come to the guitar a bit later without those those kind of nimble fingers. How was it that you came to be the person who wrote I'm Your Man, who wrote what I think has been described not just as a, a kind of gold standard as a rock and roll biography, but really as biography and the amazing timing of the book. And as you described it, Leonard Cohen's, uh, what we what you called the comeback, hesitantly called the comeback, but clearly a kind of uh, re-emergence. How did it come to be that you were the person who wrote that book? How, how did I become Leonard's handmaiden with the pen? Um, well, I guess if we kind of have the wavy screen and go way back, I mean, Leonard Cohen's music was there just about the day that I hit puberty. And uh, it came in the form of a cheap compilation album. I was living at home still. I was a little kid uh, with my mom and dad loving the Beatles. And I bought an LP that was really, really cheap. It the price of a 45 of a single back in the late 60s. And it was American people that were signed to um, uh, to Columbia Records and they considered that Canada was near enough America. So Bob Dylan was on it. I heard Bob Dylan for the first time really on there. Uh-huh. And also Leonard Cohen. And just hearing that voice in my little bedroom on my portable record player somehow made me sit up straight and really, really mm-hmm. listen. Just to, there was something in his voice, a kind of, a formality, a strange formality, but mostly a kind of feeling that this guy has something to say. He knows how to say it. And I remember waiting until my birthday to get the first album, you know. I didn't have the money to buy it. And being rather shocked at his picture, looking like a dead Spanish poet on the front cover, (laughs) and thinking, wow, this doesn't look like Paul McCartney. But this where where my love of the music started, and then, As a music journalist, I came to interview him, and the time that we spent the most time together was in 2001, after Leonard Cohen had come down from living on Mount Baldy to do, as a a Buddhist monk, to make an album that he had written with Sharon Robinson, writing the melodies. It was wonderful, absolutely wonderful album. He was in London, where I was, and uh, doing interviews, and the interview, we, we got together for three days. We had a lot of time together to do this very long interview for Mojo magazine. And we stayed in touch briefly afterwards by email. And after that, of course, the protocol is you walk slowly back out of the room like a courtier with a king and you don't stay in touch. But I realized when I was transcribing that tape that though I got some wonderful, wonderful 
quotes from him are material. He he kind of was blowing the smoke in my eyes a lot of the time in the sense that he managed to sort of dodge some of the questions. But by giving such articulate answers in that kind of heightened language of his, you feel like you've got something wonderful to print, but deep inside you're thinking, I've got to get further into the soul. I need to really know this man. And so eventually I kind of got in touch and asked if I might do a book. Does that mean that when you were getting in touch and sort of making the pitch through whatever channels uh, you utilized that you were saying to him, I think we can go deeper. There's more here. I want to, I want to remove a layer. Um, How did you present or represent yourself as a person who could, as you say, uh, be the, be the handmaid to the to the tale. Well, you know, I think that it would be very dangerous in my experience of interviewing rock stars and pop stars and celebrities over the years to say I want to go deeper. That would close the door so much, so quickly in your face, mm. because there's still this area, especially if you're a sort of shy man in a way, which Leonard was to some degree, shy about his his privacy being invaded to some degree. A lot of um, front men are like that in bands. You know, you could talk to a guitar player or a bass player or certainly a drummer, and, you you know, you'd get everything they ever did out of them. But with a, a singer, somehow they like to hide behind the press releases. They've got a story they want to tell you. So now I got in touch and... Um, and I said I would like to write this book. I, I told him that I felt that he was underserved by biographies. Um, right here, I'm sitting in my, my kind of office room, my workroom. Mm-hmm. And there's three shelves full of uh, Bob Dylan books. You know, you want to find anything about Bob Dylan. You know, I've got the haters writing it. I've got the lovers writing it. I've got the <laughs> trash can. You know, but Leonard Cohen, who to me was one of the greatest artists of of our time. He had so little, so very, very little. And when I read these books, they they didn't satisfy me. I didn't feel those people had gone particularly deep. And so I mentioned that I felt that he was underserved and I felt that I would like to write a book. I would do it with diligence and heart. That framing of Leonard Cohen being underserved from a biographical perspective, it, it's really quite a paradox, isn't it? Because of all of the, the real titans of uh, of the singer-songwriters, those who really um, inhabited that space, he's deeply, deeply autobiographical in his, his writing. He would not claim, I don't think, as Dylan has often done, that it really is all invention, or as Joni Mitchell claimed about Dylan, that it's you know, really a fake. Um, he's very much exposed in his music. He is present as the singer telling his own tale, is he not? And yet uh, you felt that sort of the the public knowledge of who the person was, was lacking. Hmm. Well, it's just possible that uh, with Lana Cohen, it was that his major, um, you know, these the fans were in Europe to start with, 
really, you know, I remember when the first album came out, I'd sort of become a little obsessed with him after buying that album. And none of my friends had kind of got it at that time. We were still okay. into kind of the British pop bands. But I, I just had that feeling that because I'd, I'd see articles where they were talking about Dylan and and Cohen in the same breath. There'd be pictures of them on the same page. You'd find this all the time. But in America, he really didn't get that much success. He's got so He got some attention for the first album, and then it kind of started to dwindle off until um, I'm Your Man came out in the 80s. There was a point before that where his record label didn't even release the album that Alleluia was on, thinking that That's nobody right. would want to buy it. He had to put it out on an independent label. So I think that it was possibly that a lot of the biographies, <laughs> biographers being out in America didn't really pick up on him until a little bit later and thought that his career started at that point. But it seemed that in England, you know, he'd be on the TV. He was on the Judy Felix show. She was a, a folk singer that had come over, I think, from America, and but was a, a success in the UK. We would hear him on the BBC radio all the time. And I went to see a concert of his, I guess it was in 1970, when he, it was his first tour of the UK. So he had a presence there. And I think probably, you know, the further north he went in Europe, the bigger his fans were, you know, it was right, almost like right. cathedrals to Leonard Cohen by the time you got to Norway. Wherever the darkness was, there was Leonard kind of singing into it. And it was really only when he cheered his music up a little bit by playing synthesizers and, and kind of having some more overt humor in it as opposed to the sort of deep, dark <laughs> humor that he always had from the beginning. Not everybody recognized that he had that sort of big stardom. This humor and the the joking reference to his Casio synthesizer, which I think he mentioned in many interviews and loved to gesture sort of, uh, to the to the band in this living room, um, was he conscious of the fact that he was um, becoming sort of more accessible because um, the darkness was abating a bit, or some sense of humor being able to cut the sting of some of that darkness? Well, that's that's going to be a difficult one to answer because Leonard was very good at putting on a happy face even when he was in a very dark place. You know, he had that kind of uh, Canadian way and also sort of a British way of mustn't grumble, let's get on with it. And uh, nobody really quite knew the, that the amount of, of pain and torture that would go into his writing, because even when writing a song like A Tower of Song, which did have that humor in it, you know, I was born like this, I had no choice. I was born with the gift of a golden voice and right. that smile. That didn't exactly come out in a kind of happy moment with his feet up on the balcony, you know, of his his little place in L.A. There was a whole lot of depression there, but like his best friend from his childhood said, he wasn't a whiny kind of depressive. He just got on with mm. it. He kind of braved it. He was in a position of, uh, of really like knowing and accepting as the years went by with his studies that... Uh, the world was broken. Everything was broken. You know, it was imperfect, but he was a perfectionist nonetheless. So he was in a bit of a mess with that. And it wasn't until he was 70 years old and finally the depression lifted that he could kind of go on stage with that sort of genuine joy. But there's also some joy, of course, in having an audience. 
the image of him skipping across the stage um, sticks in my mind from from those that 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 final series of, of touring and that kind of whimsical, almost ecstatic, but but fun. Just someone really just enjoying themselves. He was so, enjoying it. I mean, it yeah. was so interesting. It was some one of the things I was talking to him about. I was sitting with him in his tiny kitchen at his tiny place in LA of which he only lived in half of it his daughter had the other half and and I was asking him about you know how when why did the depression go I said I'm you know let me do kind of chicken soup for the soul you know heal depression the Leonard Cohen way and he said well it takes more than 30 years darling (laughs) Mm. and it was uh, very very true he said he just woke up one day I guess he was 70 and he looked out the window and he heard the birds and thing and he felt, he felt joy. And he said, is this how normal people think when they wake up in the morning? He hasn't realized it. He didn't want to talk too much about how it was cured because as he said, as my mom always said, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. If you talk about it, mm-hmm. it might go away. Speaking of normal, normal people, um, one of the things that we're doing on this uh, podcast, which focuses on on Bob Dylan, is we've been thinking about Dylan in context of some of his peers. When Cohen thought of uh, of of peers, the the other quote unquote normal people working in the in the vineyards where he toiled, who did he see as his peers, his creative peers? Well, it's very hard to say because he could never really name anybody. I mean, he knew who Dylan was, but you know, and he obviously very, very much appreciated Dylan's work. But Dylan was like seven years younger than Leonard. Leonard was a poet, a published poet, not just a poet sitting at home and not putting melody to the words that he wrote. He was a poet and acclaimed as such before he had become a person in the music business. He had turned to the music business purely and solely, he said, because he was making not enough money to write. Now, this is a strange thing because Leonard was from a well-to-do family. He could have just joined any of the companies that the you know the family sure. owned or even one of the philanthropic organizations has made a living and gone off to be a poet, but he wanted to make his money by himself or with the help of Canadian grants, which I believe are quite good. <laughs> I was born to the okay. wrong place. But... Um, Yes, I keep asking him if they take me in now that I'm there. Well, as a handmaiden of Leonard, I would think I should get a visa or something. And as for for music, you know, as far as musicians, he would would listen to Ray Charles and mostly the Ray Charles sort of singing country songs. He really did not have that kind of background in music. He wasn't raised on on much in the way of music. His father liked old World War I songs. His father had actually served in World War I and it had been for Canada. And it had been the war that had given him some kind of wound that Leonard really didn't quite know what it was that had sort of led him to die when Leonard was nine years old. So there was no nothing from the family. His mother sang kind of Russian folk songs. So I guess there's a little of that in there, the kind of that mix of joy and mournfulness in the early things. And he had learned to play by, he said, by kind of copying or taking a few lessons from a, a Spanish kid that he'd met in the park behind the house in Montreal where he lived with his parents. But previous to that, he'd learned some folk songs at a 
one of those summer camps that Jewish kids are sent to. So he had that sure. backing plus the uh, before that the ukulele. So a musical peer is not really, and that's probably why his music. When you listen to those songs on the first album, they're so completely not just timeless but out of time. They don't relate to anything that was around at the time. But at least uh, Dylan, you know, he had Woody Allen. He he had his uh, Woody Allen, <laughs> Woody Guthrie. <laughs> well, I like that. It should have been Woody yeah. Allen, shouldn't it? Typical <laughs> Freudian and Freudian. The whole, the whole. Yes, it's yeah, a very good Freudian slip. But, but you know, in the yeah, cafe, it could be Jungian, and I had a weird dream that way. Who knows? <laughs> it, it was Bob Dylan's, uh, I don't know if it was his 115th dream, but at the same time that Dylan was doing his shtick, if you will, uh, it was just a bit mm-hmm. after Lenny Bruce had left the village, but Woody Allen was there, Richard Pryor was there. Um, they they really mm-hmm. were on the same, and so was John Lee Hooker, right? They were all that was uh, um, that was all uh, in the mix. So I, I've actually been thinking a lot about um, Bob Dylan and Philip Roth as being contemporaries. They really um, were, uh, in certain ways, um, aligned. And in 1961, they both sort of burst onto mm-hmm. the onto the scene at the same time. It's it's interesting generationally. And, and as you're saying, Leonard Cohen was older. Yes. Leonard Cohen was older than the Bull. He was, and uh, he wasn't even accepted by the Beats or the Beat Poets. Nobody, you know, he, he said they considered he was as an old-fashioned poet. There's the tradition that um, I write a little bit about uh, in my book, this, uh, this, this idea that comes from, uh, from Greco-Roman literature of the Chlia, which is sort of the story of the great, the great person. I mean, they are typically stories of men, exemplar sorts of stories, and and the exemplar story of, of Dylan and uh, Leonard Cohen appears on page 339 of my edition of I'm Your Man in a, mm-hmm. a beautifully titled chapter, The Hallelujah of the Orgasm, which could definitely be a Philip Roth book as well, I think, um, <laughs> where, where Leonard and Dylan, I'm just reading here, had met up. Uh, when they both found themselves in Paris and sat in a cafe. So this is a famous uh, story, a famous priya of, of, of great men. Um, and they were trading lyrics back and forth. Dylan showed Leonard his new song, I and I. Leonard asked how long it took him to write. And Dylan said, 15 minutes. Leonard showed Dylan hallelujah. Impressed, Dylan asked how long it took Leonard to write it. A couple of years. And and I think that was underestimating slightly the amount of time, according yes. to uh, yes, yes, it was more like five years and endless notebooks. But there there are some artists that do go for the instant. I mean, go, let's just wander just temporarily into the rock world for a moment. Neil Young, you know, he writes something. There it is. It's done. It's finished. He decides who he's going to work with on it. You know, whatever he feels like, and it's out. And then he's moving on. And with Leonard, it was always going back, polishing it a little more, trying it another way. And I, you know, I got to the point where I was almost like worried for him, you know, like, for heaven's sake, why don't you just do it? Why don't you put this thing out? And and his thing was like, I have to feel, I believe the guy who's saying or singing these words. He said, I can, yeah, I can toss off a song. I can write a song, you know, but I have to be able to convince myself that it's authentic. And this was a thing that he was always going back and polishing and changing for. I mean, another song people, everybody knows, I think, 
uh, that's maybe not everybody, but most people know that uh, Alleluia, there's like about 80 notebooks full of verses. I've seen tons and tons of them myself. Uh, but there's uh, the song um, Anthem, you know, there's a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. That was 15 years in the writing. He tried it out on several different albums and said, no, it still doesn't sound right. And it was only his then fiance, uh, Rebecca De Mornay, the actress, who was hearing him play it on, on the synthesizer at her house and said, that's it, you've got to record it. And luckily she was a persuasive woman and it worked. You've engaged in conversation with just about every kind of, of rock and roller. Do you see, are there are there different schools? There's the the long, slow, 15-year march towards uh, a lyric versus the uh, 15 minutes in a cab version. Are those two different schools of rock and roll? Are there, are there categories there that you could point to? I wouldn't put it into categories as such. And, and when you're dealing with the, you know, the two great men, as you say, when you're dealing with Dylan and Leonard Cohen, you're dealing with almost archetypes. I mean, these two people... They seem like they've been around forever, or they should have been. We can go back to Grecian times. Right. And they are, in a way, kind of one-person genres. You know, each one of them is is kind of completely, to me, divorced from the rest of the music business. You get these people that come along and say, let me sound a bit more like Dylan, or let me sound a bit more like Leonard Cohen. But, you know, Leonard Cohen doesn't ever say that. Dylan doesn't ever say that. They just get on with what they're doing. And they, I guess, change the style of things as they feel like, as it suits them. There is a, a famous article by Eric Albach. This is Scar, sort of tracks what's called the, the Hebraic versus the Hellenistic ways of writing and creating art, creating narrative, really. Mm-hmm. And he describes the story of Isaac and Abraham, obviously, Dylan had his version, and Leonard Cohen had his version of that yeah, song. Yeah, Leonard had versus, his version. Yeah, and versus the story of Odysseus, Scar, and the discovery of who Odysseus was. This concept that the mm-hmm. the Hellenist version, the Greco-Roman version, is layered with detail and um, colorful and rich, and really can go on and on, but leaves no gaps. It's um, tirelessly detailed, um, whereas the sort of the Hebraic version is full of gaps. And in thinking about mm-hmm. Cohen and Dylan, it's probably a much too binary way of thinking about these two artists or pigeonholing them. But one could imagine Dylan is very much, much more of the Hellenist artist, much more of an epic approach to narrative, whereas Leonard Cohen, so economical um, and finding ways to be as precise as one possibly could. Do you imagine Leonard Cohen seeing himself um, all the way through his career as ultimately being that um, that poet the, that he was creating liturgy all the way through? He did not see himself as an epic storyteller, but as a, a teller of moments? <laughs> That's a very good question, and I think it would probably take an essay to answer it, to be honest. But I think more to the point in the beginning, I don't think, in fact, I'm 100% sure that he didn't feel that he was a writer of liturgy. He His plan was to go to Nashville and be a country music writer. 
Now, <laughs> those two won't really go together too well. Kind of didn't figure that. But it's quite interesting that the first, when he, when he first um, read the poetry of Lorca, you know, when he first decided to become an actual poet as opposed to just a kid at school who writes the odd poem and gets a pat on the head, where he felt he could really do it seriously was by um, happening upon a sort of book sale outside a bookshop where he picked up a book of poetry by Lorca. Spanish poet, and he said as he was reading this to himself, he said like that little hair stood up on the back of his neck and his arms, and he said he heard the music of the synagogue. So somewhere in there, on the first day that he kind of decided pretty much to, you know, start writing music as well, it was the same year, he was 15 years old, and it was the same year he got his first guitar. Then he found this poetry of Lorca, and the two did seem to kind of fused together at that point. And when I asked him about the, the question, like, you heard the sound of the synagogue, you know, what did this mean to you, you know, going into my sort of psychoanalyst mode? And his thing was, well, you know, I didn't know an awful lot about music back then. I just heard, you know, a few folk songs and my dad's World War One songs. I didn't really listen to music. You have a beautiful uh, moment in, in your interview uh, of with Tom Waits from, I guess, 2004 with Mojo, uh, where you, you imagine the fly on the wall watching him and Keith Richards uh, meet up. Uh, and that image of the fly on the wall, I was thinking as I read that, how I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for this, this litany of, of, of interviews that you've done, these conversations. I mean, I, I don't actually know of anyone who's been in so many rooms of our great artists and um, and yet, I don't think you've ever interviewed Dylan. Is that correct? That is absolutely uh, correct. It came so close, so close. We were going to be doing, I was meant to be doing an interview, and at the last minute, between negotiations with the magazine and his people, it fell apart. And in a way, I'm glad to wait. I think I will get to interview him at some point. And I'm glad it's going to be at a time post-Scorsese and post-Chronicles. Mm. Because for a music journalist, um, speaking to Bob Dylan pre that time would have been a whole different game. I say a different ball game, but it takes us to his radio show. But, you know, it was the thing That's where... Right. Well, I think a whole bunch of us, I, I was sitting with a friend of mine who is one of the biggest Bob Dylan fans in the world when the part one of the Scorsese film came on. We were sitting on his sofa and both of us, our jaws dropped to the ground when when Dylan was talking, like a kind of cartoon. He <laughs> was suddenly a big oblong yeah, in each yeah. of our faces appeared. And, you know, you could, hear, you could hear a pin drop. We were so wrapped by hearing him tell the truth, just to say what he really felt about the music that that he listened to, all of these things, and that same feeling with Chronicles 1, which I, you know, I think in Mojo we were doing a piece on the best Bob Dylan books, because there are so many, and, you know, these magazines do love their kind of top tens, I think it's a boy thing, girls tend, not, it was an easy one that Bob Dylan's Chronicles 1 was a marvel, an absolute marvel, you know, I love it. It's, you know, it was the Bob Dylan, the New Testament, really. <laughs> Here I yeah, am. I'm not going to play games. And, so, yeah. and we'll get to the New Testament in a moment because you, you wrote a wonderful essay uh, in the collection Faith 
essays, uh, True Believers, Agnostics, and Atheists. She wrote a, a wonderful uh, essay called Jesus, a Love Story. So I wanted, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, but ah, before we do... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You've read that, that's too. Right. That's, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wonder oh, why I didn't have forgotten the name of the book. I thought, Lordy, there's well, another no. Sylvie Simmons out there doing things. So, no, professor, mm-hmm. professor, it has been a great pleasure preparing for this seminar. I must say, I must say, <laughs> a lot of fun for sure. Um, so, so, what would be a few of the questions you'd want to ask Dylan if you, if well, when? Okay, let's say, let's hope that when you have the opportunity. I don't know if you, you're able to give them away. Jeff Rosen may be listening you don't think he's been asked or he hasn't answered in a way that you think you might be able to get him to answer? Ah, well, I'm keeping those secret until that Okay. <laughs> for sure. But I can tell you one thing. You'd mentioned Tom Waits, and uh, mm-hmm. I remember one, I think one of the last times I was at Leonard's house talking to him for the book, and he was in a quiet mode, you know. Occasionally, we just would sit there on the balcony. He had this one balcony, a tiny little thing with a table and two chairs and there'd be the dogs padding down in the yard and he would usually bring out some smoothie that he'd made or, or something or a good glass of wine. And I was still asking him some questions. There was no stopping me with my questions. And he was very sweet. He said, you know, you should get Tom Waits to answer them. <laughs> he, said, he gives such good answers. You know, there is uh, there are rock and roll um creation stories that just like uh, Newton with the apple or the Eureka in the bathtub where there's that moment, you know, Bruce Springsteen describes hearing the, 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 the snare pop at the beginning of like a rolling stone and the door of his, you know, kicks open the door to his mind. Um, I, I sometimes go through the, some of the older collections, of the rolling stone uh, interviews, and, and you'll find a lot of artists reflecting on, you know, the first time they heard Dylan, uh, their Dylan's influence. Um, it, of, of the interviews you've done, is there anyone where you you heard a, a, a particular resonance, surprising resonance uh, that Dylan had for an artist where you thought, hmm, I didn't know that that's where that had come from? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the question did Dylan come up in, in any of the interviews? Uh, yeah, in, in interviews that you did. Oh, do you mean, have I interviewed people who talk about Dylan? Exactly, uh, exactly. No, not really. And nothing that comes to mind, but of course, as soon as I hang up, I'll think, oh my gosh, yeah. I think if anything, more people would talk about um, Leonard Cohen. I remember interviewing mm-hmm. um, Nick Cave at one point. Um, I think, I'm not sure if it was for the book I did with Johnny Cash. Uh, but whatever it was, and, and sort of his love of, of Leonard Cohen came up. I think I must have asked him about the the tour he did that was put together by the now sadly late Hal Wilner. Of, it was a kind of tribute to Leonard Cohen, but it was Hal Wilner's way of putting people together who you normally wouldn't have playing right. somebody else's songs. And it, it, there was some very sweet story he told me, and it, I, it didn't go in the book because it was not for a biography. But he said, uh, he said that his, um, he said, you know, I have um, Leonard Cohen's suitcase. And Leonard was still alive at this time. And I said, you do? <laughs> you want to give it back? You stole it? He said, and he got a little kind of nervous and quiet, like people do when they're somewhat in awe of somebody, I guess, you know. And it often happens where you, you meet an artist, say, even like Tom Waits, who is in awe of somebody like Johnny Cash. 
So he said, that, oh, no, it was my wife and you, um, his his girlfriend, and uh, and so uh, uh, Dominique Gisserman, and they were, he had this lovely case, and he didn't need it anymore, and so I got this case. <laughs> but it was this sort of, it was said almost like he was given some sort of, you know, some tablets by Moses, yeah. just kind a of, by, you know, exactly. Well, relics, right, were yeah, actually it was like, uh, the bones or the hair of uh, of the saints, right? The lives of the saints reflected in in whatever was mm-hmm. their remains. So, um, well, speaking mm-hmm. of well, speaking of saints, speaking of saints, um, and your your essay, Jesus, the love story. So, you um, ah, you, yes. you I was had to get off of that one. <laughs> yes, we 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 must we must we mm-hmm. must. <laughs> um, you you describe. Um, your your fascination, your intimacy, your your love of Jesus, and then a new love came to town. That was the Beatles, and you describe a, a search. I'll leave people to uh, to find the essay. I think the book was released in maybe 2015. Um, and uh, and and when you do find yourself back in uh, in St. Paul's Cathedral, um, looking uh, for Jesus, I don't know, wrapping on the big wooden doors, however one enters the space there. Um, Jesus was not there. Um, you've spent, um, uh, at this point, decades speaking to just about everyone recognizable, I think, in the pantheon of rock and roll. I'm just curious about your reflections on rock and roll as a religion, uh, musicians as a kind of prophet, uh, the sacrament and communion that takes place between the the fan, which means fanatic, which comes from a term used for religion. The fanatics were religious uh, in orientation. What is this this um, this thing uh, of popular music that has so many echoes or reflections of religion? How do you experience that as a seeker, as a creator? as a musician yourself? Well, as a child, it kind of meant just about everything to me. Of course, there's the sort of the idea of the, you know, the artist as being the one who's dying for us, you know, is doing all of these crazy things on our behalf. And of course, we have to come and give them sacrifices of our own and whatever it might be, our body, our soul, or our money. Um, In my particular case, I, I was raised in London and my background is both Jewish and Christian. So I have a, a kind of interesting mix there just by, by birth and blood. And in England, pretty much everybody I knew wasn't really that engaged in religion. It was there. It was in the background. We had it as a sort of cultural touchstone in a way. If it was Easter, you had Easter eggs, you know, and if it was Christmas, you sang carols. And people didn't tend to go to church very much, maybe sort of the older, even older than my older generation. I'm older generation now, but at that time I was a kid. Um, my thing with Jesus is that um, when I was a little girl, my brothers and I were sent down to the nearest church, which wasn't a cathedral, it was just St. Paul's Church. And, uh, and we would do a Sunday school thing, which I always thought was a way of your mum and dad having a morning on Sunday to get up to what mums and dads do when their kids aren't sitting there around. So uh, when I was down there, though, I just read all the stories, of, like, the kiddies' stories of Jesus, and completely fell in love with Jesus. 
I just thought this was this was the sweetest, kindest person on earth. And I came from a rather troubled family. And so in the end, Jesus became kind of like my imaginary friend. Now, there will be people who don't, who are atheists who would say that all of these people in religion are your imaginary friends. But this was like a a close friend who I would go and see every day in this secret passage in this church. And I would have sworn on every Bible there was that this was true as a kid. It was that true to me. But um, as I got older and I guess into adolescence, not adolescence, even puberty, it was a case of even by that pre-puberty, I'd realized that my new gods, you know, were there. I liked my Beatles. I liked these people who were singing about love and pain and sadness and hope. It just seemed better. It seemed somehow that I'd learned great chunks of the New Testament by heart so I could talk to Jesus in our little secret meetings and somehow he wasn't yeah, he wasn't putting out for me. And it's a very irreligious way of looking at it. But mm. that's really, I think, what gave me a new thing that I became obsessed with. And that was, you know, in that case, John Mellon of the Beatles, the one who sounded like he had a tear in his voice. So there's this this theory of uh, of the prophets in the Bible to try to track where they get the message down from, you know, a paragraph to a sentence to a single verse to a to a word and sometimes I like to play the uh, rock and roll game so so what is the ultimate message right is the beatles ultimate message all you need is love I, I would say dylan's message for me at least is how does it feel um a message actually of empathy i i hear i hear empathy as being a core message of dylan as cranky as he may be uh, wh- what do you think if you had to choose leonard cohen's uh aphorism, his statement, his epitaph in terms of the message, could you boil it down to something that, you know, he might say, this is what it's all about? Oh, again, these are such great questions, but there's nothing that I can give you a pithy answer to, and you would be on for the next four hours for me to even dig in there, and it would probably be a fairly... Yeah, that's going to be... That's really going to be a, a very hard one. It's um, nothing that I can give you a quick answer to, really. I I um, just wanna wanna uh, ask for for one more reflection on this called a concept, the the testament of rock and roll, right? The the testament of rock and roll. As as obviously you still have many more uh, interviews to do, including the Dylan interview, and and many more songs to sing and books to write. But rock and roll as a as a a movement, if you will, right? At a certain point, right? The fragmentation, the balkanization of, of music. Do you mm-hmm. think about where this music, where this testament will go? What will be remembered? Are there times in thinking about history or other cultural movements that you would reflect out? into how you imagine rock and roll will be conceived in the century to come. Beyond that, is there any way of conceiving what this thing meant, this incredible outburst of creativity and activity and personality and music? I think that the answer to that is yet to come. I think what is so strange is that, you know, back in the 60s when I was just beginning to kind of come into my teens at the end of the 60s, None of us would have thought to be kind of playing or listening to music that was 30 years older. But right now, a lot of the kids are getting into music. My friend's children or grandchildren 
are really falling in love with the music, the classic rock music or the classic pop people from that period. So clearly there was a golden age and the environment and the culture was ready for that. Uh, certainly in England uh, at that time in the 60s, it was still very monochrome. Nobody had really come in and turned the lights on until the Beatles got psychedelic and everything kind of seemed to change in my world and the world of post-war Britain. But there really wasn't anything on the radio or the TV that you could really hear this stuff going on. We had pirate radio that was offshore because the BBC, which was our national uh, radio company, would not allow it onshore. They had to go and sit in boats and possibly get arrested if they came back in, right. if there was a policeman nearby. So really, it was a kind of a thing you had to almost seek out. It was also like we were talking earlier about... Um, sacrifice and relics you know the religious side of it you went and bought an LP an LP cost a lot of money you know as you couldn't steal it like you can now off the radio and you even look up with CDs because you could just put them in your pocket and walk out an LP was something hefty it had artwork on it had lyrics on it you learned everything you all the credits you knew the names everything you looked in it for signs and to await a new album really was, it's like waiting for another chapter in, in the New Testament, you know, something coming along. So it's the culture there, we didn't have anything else going on. We didn't have the distraction of, of social media, thank God. Otherwise, Lord knows what would have happened. But there was this thing that where music was the most important thing in certain people's lives that I knew. And we had to learn a lot. You know, even to go and do an interview, you had to, you'd had to have read all of the music press for the last few years to know anything about that artist because you couldn't just Google it or go onto Wikipedia and find an instant answer. So there was something that involved work and sacrifice and at the same time some kind of absolute, I know, bliss from having these new albums that you play to death. The interesting thing about the LP is those grooves could be killed. I actually did play my first Leonard Cohen album to death. I could get another one. You, you flattened so, it. So, uh, well, it was the other way. Actually, I kind of curved it because it I, curved, you know, I keep curved. forgetting to turn the record player off and it sort of turned into a fruit bowl. But I'd mostly sort of had just played it so often that it, it changed his voice more than he changed his voice by himself in later life and found a, a voice that was more comfortable to him. You know, um, it, it it comes across in your in your interviews and and in the way that you frame the artists that you've spoken with and so many different kinds of artists. This um, it, there's a real eloquence and a real sense of appreciation, but it is a very different kind of critique and music journalism than um, the kind of flat puff piece uh, that you know you often see really in any kind of journalism. Um, I guess there's a mode where really um just like just like in the testaments right uh Paul, Paul we needed Paul for Jesus to get the message out we needed John we needed a we needed the gospels we needed it took a team it took a village um and the role of the rock yeah. journalist really in creating these mythologies um is essential um you know I think of you That's I'm, a, true. I'm a huge fan of Greal Marcus um Dave Marsh. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many, um, but w w without, um, overdoing the fact that you simply have tremendous, um, 
music knowledge and love of music, and that comes through so clearly. Um, also, as a woman, uh, to be able to create those kinds of relationships, survive, right? Survive the rock and roll uh, <laughs> world, and and to do so by saying that Motley Crue were some of the nicest guys you ever met out there on the road, which I found shocking. <laughs> that you, that you said Actually, that. probably, you know, I would go, it was more that the metal guys in general were, uh-huh. you know. Certainly, uh, you know, they were they were less likely to try it on than uh, some of the others, shall we say. But yes, I mean, it was a very interesting be- thing being a woman, being the only person on the road who was a woman. But anyway, that's uh, that was a long time ago. There's women writers now, which is uh, a good thing. And there were some around as well when I was young. But... I think also sometimes it allowed me to get to ask some different questions that perhaps uh, a man might not have been able to ask or would have felt embarrassed to ask of another man. And so perhaps people might talk to me about things that they wouldn't really want to talk to a, you know, a spectacled spotty guy about. I don't know. If there was good sides about being a woman in the business and there were certainly some <laughs> hair raising sides about yeah. being in the business, and but with Leonard, I mean, I think it, it, I think he was very happy to have a, a female biographer. He uh, he definitely was somebody that you could tell if a woman walked into the room, there was something about his his whole being that lit up. You know, he would stand up and be the gentleman, you know, get a chair yeah. for you and be very focused on that you were comfortable, that you had everything that you needed. I think he would, he tolerated a lot more personal questions, I think, for me, because you're not going to be ungracious to a woman. I don't know if uh, Dylan would be like that, but, it, it, you know, it would be really interesting. You asked me what I would ask him, but I mean, I would ask Dylan a bit about his kind of, um, in a way, dance between the choreography between being a Christian and being a, a Jew. That's fascinating to me. You'd mentioned earlier the two takes on the story of mm-hmm. Isaac, which to me are just absolutely fascinating, or even, you know, uh, The Butcher and all these other songs of Leonard's that kind of uh, really have such a, a completely Jewish core to them. And I remember that Dylan once said he believed in the book of Revelation as his prophecy. I mean, I'd like to ask sure. him a bit about that. Yeah, and he and Cohen both actually held the New Testament in high regard. And I mean, Leonard said to me, I love Jesus, but I didn't stand up in the synagogue and shout it. Yeah, you know, my day job is, uh, is in Jewish scholarship and, and, uh, and Jewish culture, and I'm often asked... Um, about Dylan as a Jewish artist. I think it's very hard, I think, to press Dylan into anything anywhere near what Leonard Cohen was doing. A, Leonard Cohen had real deep Jewish knowledge. He had language, right? He had Hebrew. Um, he had um, uh, an education. He studied with his, uh, I guess, with his, with his parents, with his grandfather. He came from a community that was a learned community. Um, and... Um, really um i think saw himself as a as a liturgical poet um in the in 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 ways where you could easily compare um leonard cohen some of his writing to the writing of the jewish um poets of the golden age of spain where you know muslim and jewish mm-hmm. culture were 
side by side and to sort of see Leonard Cohen as a uh, Ibn Gibral or one of the other great poets um, who were writing um, in lots of different languages, certainly not just in Hebrew, and, and we're hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really comes through in Cohen's work. And, and in Dylan's work, it's much more of a reach. And the choices that he makes religiously are, are typically fundamentalist choices. Um, it lacks nuance. Um, it actually is the part of religion that sort of does violence in many ways um, by being very binary mm-hmm. and taking sides, whereas Leonard Cohen seems to be able to make room. And it is, I think, amazing that someone, and, and, I, and I really don't know of many artists um, who've been able to pull this off, who very, very much can be of a tradition, uh, a believer in a tradition, practicing a tradition, and still remain universal um, and open and uh, deeply, deeply pluralistic. Um, I think it's a commentary maybe on his, his personality, the way he was raised, that, that sense of openness and, and the love and intimacy that he was able to bring people towards as an artist is, um, it's truly profound. You had a great gift to be able to have those conversations with him. How beautifully you put them across in, in I Know I'm Your Man. Uh, so thank you for that. Well, thank you. I, one, one of the things that came to mind when you were talking just then, other than agreeing with you entirely, was that Leonard was remarkably good at being able to hold two completely opposing ideas in his head at the same time. I don't know if that came about from you know 30 or more years of Zen training. I suspect he went to Zen because he was able to or was always trying to be able to hold two ideas in his head at the same time that were opposing, and that's why he was so attracted to that study. But he could do that. It was very interesting, that pluralistic side, but he's, he also has a pluralistic side in, in religion. He, you know, he went off and explored Scientology. I don't mean to put that in the same sentence as religion, but, you know, for a year at least, he, he explored it. I think it was a kind of, um, like a self-help kind of thing to him at the time because this was before there were all sorts of books about how to cure depression or how to deal with the, the pain of life and torment. And he tried that, and then, of course, he went to Judea. Uh, he went to, um, sorry, to, to deal with um, sort of the Buddhist side, and then he left the monastery in order to study Advaita, you know, Vedanta. And that's what he... Uh, says was the thing that finally cured him from his depression but he was very pluralistic in that way but he also had this real solidity this sort of informality in 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 judaism he knew he was from an important family you know his family was a very high status in montreal amongst the jews there were some wealthier families but his, you know, had founded the synagogue that everybody went to, the biggest synagogue. I think his great uncle was like the sort of, you yeah. know, the sort of lead Jewish person in Canada. And, and he knew that his family had started Jewish newspapers. He knew who he was. He was very firm in who he was. And he never regretted his upbringing. You know, that, that story about, I, I was just watching this just recently again on a, on a, somebody, somebody had posted a, an interview with Leonard back in the early days, you know, just as his first album came out, so it would have been 68 in Canada. And the uh, interviewer said to him, well, like Bob Dylan, did you think like you'd change your name, you know, 
Leonard Cohen, and he said, um, um, yes, possibly. Um, I think I would call myself September. And she <laughs> said, like, Leonard September. And he said, no, September Cohen. Uh, I thought that was just so wonderful. <laughs> it is. It is. You know, the, the, the man of words, I think that it was, whether it was his, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, who was uh, known as the Prince of Grammar. He wrote, a, he created a dictionary. Grandfather uh, by his mother's yeah. maternal. Amazing. So um, the flow of tradition continues. Um, I thank you for, for just a wonderful conversation. And uh, I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Look forward to hearing your music and, and reading your work. And uh, you've just been terrific. So thank you so very much. Glad to help. Take care. Bye. Okay. Be well. Bye. This has been episode two of season three of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. Visit mangodlaw.com for events, episodes, and more about the book about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, available now wherever books are sold. I'll be in Jerusalem, New York, Columbus, Cleveland, Mansfield, and L.A. in May. Come find me and say hello. In the weeks ahead, we'll have conversations with the rock writer David Yaffe about his books on Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, Professor Catherine Lofton on the religious import of Dylan going electric, and maybe the most surprising and fascinating Dylan scholar of them all, Scott Wormuth, whose Dylanology challenges the business of asking what Bob Dylan's all about. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Check out all of the stellar podcasts for music lovers at PantheonPodcasts.com. And did I mention the book? The book. Yes, I admit it. I'm fired up. Find About Man and God in Law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan, wherever books are sold. I am still your man, and I am also still your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnold. Thanks for coming, and see you soon.